0: Well no one wants to be an outsider. And as the guy who just moved to a new town, to a new job, to a new place, I feel this. Because when you're an outsider, it's easy to try and impress people. Like make them laugh or say something interesting. That way they'll like you and you can go from being out going from being an outsider to an insider. The problem is when you do this, you can easily kind of overcompensate and end up saying something really dumb or stupid and make a fool of yourself. And I know this because I did this. My first day of work at Christ Community. They had a lunch for um, kind of for the whole staff and a part of it was to just greet me and and to welcome me into the staff. And so at the end of the lunch, there was a space opened up to sort of ask me questions about about my life and who I am, and and, and anytime there's a chance for people to ask me questions, one of the first questions that's going to come up is, when did you first grow your beard? And this is a very important story and a very significant part of my life, as any beard for any man would be. And it's also significant for me because this was the same time, the same time that I grew my beard, was also the same time that my wife and I started dating, and I went on a three-week-long road trip out west, and, and during the road trip, I stopped shaving, um, and so I sort of grew a little bit of a beard out. And I wasn't necessarily sold on it, because it was a little annoying, a little scratchy, a little itchy, I wasn't sure how it looked. But Misty, who we weren't dating yet at the time, the first thing that she said when she saw me was, I really like that beard. <laughs> well, now I really like that beard. <laughs> so I grew it out and she fell in love with the beard and with me and and so after a few a few months of dating about a year of dating we got married and we've been married for for five years ever since and so I, I was trying to tell this story in a way that would make a good first impression but but I just made a fool of myself and my words got crossed up and my words got tangled as I'm trying to explain that Missy and I weren't dating yet and we were just kind of talking and and as I'm telling this story to the entire Christ Community staff I refer to my wife as the woman to whom I'm currently married. <laughs> to which Kevin Harlan, one of the senior pastors here, my one of my supervisors, just says, You know, around here at Christ community, we just say, My wife. <laughs> so there I was, first day on the job, talking like a total fool, utter nonsense. Because none of us want to be an outsider. We want to be at home, to be at ease, to feel comfortable. And this could be one reason why it's incredibly hard to follow Jesus. Because if you follow him very long, you'll find that in this world, you might be or feel like an outsider. That he might ask you to do something that people around you would find strange. Or to believe something that people around you would find unbelievable. That if you follow Jesus very long, you'll find yourself asking, how do I live in a world where I don't fit in and still be faithful to Jesus? How do I live in a a city, in a culture, that may not want me to follow Jesus? Well, the question, or that question, is sort of at the heart of the letter that we just heard read by Nathan. But before we look at this text, you might be someone who doesn't yet follow Jesus or isn't a Christian. You say, well, what does this have to do with me? Because this is kind of an insider letter. It's, it's, a, it's two believers of God, how to live in that sort of world. But I think this is an important letter for all of us because we live in a culture that's sort of increasingly shrinking. We sort of live in a world where all kinds of people of all different religions, of all different races have, have gotten together. And live close to one another. And and it was interesting. I I was at Starbucks working on this sermon. And I I saw a Ford F-150 pull up. And I saw the last thing I ever expected to see in a giant Ford F-150 truck. It, It was in the truck was a bunch of Buddhist monks drinking Frappuccinos. I don't know if the Buddha's getting soft or what's going on there, but that's just not what I was expecting to see. But that, it's just evident. Even in Olathe, Kansas, we, we, we live in a world that's shrinking. And oftentimes religion can kind of contribute to more conflict and more division. And, and I think if we give this letter a hearing, a fair hearing, we'll find that what God says about how to live in a world that's, that can be hostile to believers is actually quite surprising. It may be hard for some of us to take in. And if you're not yet a Christian, it may do for you what it did for me, which is make me want to follow this God who calls his people to live strangely in a world that finds them strange. And so the text we're looking at is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14. And, and the letter is written to a group of exiles who were, who were kind of forcibly relocated from Jerusalem down to Babylon. Now, what in the world did I just say? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Nathan has been preaching on the prophets, and especially the prophet Isaiah. And one of the messages the prophet Isaiah especially focused on was he warned Israel, God's chosen people, that if they didn't repent of their sin, they didn't stop oppressing the poor, if they didn't stop worshiping other gods, if they didn't return back to him, he was going to send a nation to invade them and overthrow them and send them to live somewhere else as exiles. Isaiah warned them and said, you have to repent. And we know from history, Israel didn't repent. They didn't listen to God. And so what happened was Babylon, the world's superpower, at this time, at about 600 B.C., invaded Jerusalem, conquered it, and as a part of that conquering, forcibly relocated some citizens in Jerusalem down to Babylon. And those people living in Babylon were left wondering, how do I live in a city that's hostile to me? Into the city of my captors. Into a place who doesn't want me here. That's a question we can ask, although not maybe as seriously. How do we live in a world where we're not at home? Where we don't feel like we fit in? And so God in his mercy writes this letter to tell the Israelites, here's how you live. And if the Israelites want what we, what we all want, right? Peace, a good life, a good job good kids just to flourish and if I could sum up God's main point to these these exiles what he really wants them to get it would be verse 7 where he tells them to seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare that if I could sum up these words I would say that the only way to flourish is to first seek the flourishing of those around you that the only way You and I can flourish in this life is to first seek the flourishing of those around us. What a hard word. Seek the flourishing of your captors, your enemies, those who don't like you. What does this look like? Well, we'll break down our our look at what God's saying in this letter in kind of three main points. One, what prevents flourishing. Two, what produces flourishing. And finally, three, what enables flourishing flourishing. So first, what prevents flourishing? And before we go much into that, you might wonder why the word flourishing? What, why pick that word? Kind of a strange word we don't, don't use every day. And, and the word welfare in verse 7, which shows up three times, is, is not a great translation. The, the, the Hebrew word there is shalom. And the reason I say this is because maybe you've heard that word used in other contexts, the word shalom. And the word had rich meaning to the Hebrew people. It it meant uh, peace and and wholeness and delight and and flourishing in every direction. Think of a garden where every plant is perfect, vibrant in color, rich in smells, every plant just flourishing to its, its fullest extent. It's as if God is coming and saying, imagine Babylon as it could be, as it should be if it was perfect, if it was flourishing in every direction. And so likewise, this morning, we're to think of what would it be like for Olathe, for Johnson County, for Kansas City to flourish in every direction, to be the city, the, the, the metropolitan area that it could be, to be a place vibrant, where a, 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 all economy lifts up all people, where there's no homelessness or, or joblessness or suffering, where the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. Imagine that, a city flourishing in every direction. And so God is asking the readers of this letter to imagine imagine Babylon as it should be. And as he does that, he lays out kind of two pitfalls that people of faith often walk into as we relate to cities and cultures that often are hostile to us. Two mistakes we often walk into. The first being that we are not to become adversaries of our cities. As God's writing this letter, he, he gives them three commands. He tells them to build, plant, build houses, plant gardens, and, and get married. And there's another place in the Bible where those same three verbs show up. And it's in the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy is written at a time when Israel was getting ready to go into war. And what God wanted to do was say, okay, there's some of you I don't want to go to war. And so he wrote sort of a part of the Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 20, where he laid out the exceptions, the exemption for people who were not to go to war. And what he said, what God said there was, okay, if you have just built a house, if you've just planted a garden, planted a vineyard, or if you just got married, don't go to war. Stay home. And so as we, we read this letter, we should, have, should remember back to Deuteronomy and think, okay, God is telling them to do in Jeremiah the sorts of things that mean you don't go to war. Because at this time, we, we sort of know that, that some Jews were thinking Babylon was going to be overthrown in just a couple of years. And so therefore, let's go to war. Let's take them down ourselves. And God's saying through Jeremiah, don't do that. The city's not your adversary. Don't go to war. I am not calling you to bring the fall of Babylon. I'm calling you to seek their flourishing. So we're not to be adversaries of our city. And I have to be honest, I think this is a word we especially need to hear as as Christians. That it's easy to look at our city or to look at our culture and assume they're hostile to us, or they don't share our values, and therefore we, we need to be adversarial against them. But as I think through that, it, there's this amazing moment in Jesus' life when he is on the outside of Jerusalem, walking into the city for the very last time. And as he gets to the outside of the city, he begins to weep for Jerusalem. But why he weeps is, to me, really surprising. And he doesn't weep because he's about to die. Because his disciples are about to abandon him. He weeps because he knows in a few decades Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That Rome is going to invade Jerusalem. And the language Jesus uses there is that not a stone will be left upon another stone. That, that it's as if they're going to come in and brick by brick take apart the city. It's going to be utterly devastated. And so Jesus weep, or weeps lamenting that this is going to happen to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem, the city that's about to give him a sham trial and convict him. It's about to mock him and, and spit in his face and ultimately crucify him on a cross. And Jesus does not look at that city as his enemy, as his adversary, but he knows what it could have been and it won't be because of their sin. And so likewise, we're to look at our city, our culture, and not to to be adversarial towards it, but to hope for it, to to hope it can flourish into what it could be, not to be its adversaries, that we should be an advocate for our city and what it could be, not its adversary. And so that's a first kind of pitfall that it's easy to walk into. And then second, we're not to assimilate into our cities. When I first read this letter and read this history, it seemed to me that what Babylon was doing here was kind of counterproductive. Right, that you get a bunch of people angry at you by conquering them and making them move, and then you just move them in right next door to you. Right? Like that's not what I, would, I don't want angry people living right by me. You know, I don't want people who like me living by me. That would seem to be a better way to go about things. But yet Babylon takes these people, conquers them, moves them in next door. And the reason for this was they, they wouldn't just move the exiles into the city. They would give them positions of power, of influence. They would give them good jobs. That if you've ever read the book of Daniel in the Bible, that that sort of tells the story of Daniel who was welcomed into the king's influence, in the king's court, because their hope was if you got into those positions of influence, you wouldn't rebel. You'd be a part of the system. You'd have a stake in the system, and therefore you wouldn't want to see Babylon overthrown. You would work for Babylon. You would become fully Babylonian. You would stop worshiping the gods that you had previously worshipped. You'd stop having the values that you had previously had. You would become Babylonian. This is why God says, do not decrease there, increase. Don't become Babylonian. Don't become assimilated. And so how do we avoid assimilation as a, as, as a church? How do we be faithful in that? And the first thing we cannot do is just seek to isolate ourselves off from the city. As a, a father of a young son and with another child on the way, it's sort of easy for me to kind of be afraid of the influence of the city on my kids and just think, you know, I'm just going to buy a plot of land in the middle of Kansas somewhere, put landmines around it, just kind of hang out there until Jesus comes back and just hope for the best, you know, just stay away from the city. And yet God is, I think, very clear in saying that is not what he calls his people to. That as Jesus is praying for his disciples and his broader church, right before he dies, what he prays for them is specifically that God would not take them out of the world, but that God would protect them from the evil one, And that they would be sent into the world like Jesus was sent into the world. That we are a sent people, sent to our cities. And so we're not to isolate our cities to protect ourselves. That's not the way God works. But we do recognize, right, that that's a real problem. That Assimilating, becoming just like the city is a real problem. The only thing is I think it's a real problem in ways you and I don't think about. That often when I fear my kids becoming or me becoming assimilated into the city, the first thing I think of is, is you know, to have the same views of sex as the city or to, to chase after money the way the city does. But, but there's something far more subtle, far more problematic at the center of every city. The, 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 the reason why cities don't ultimately flourish, a, a, just a subtle problem that we all struggle with to illustrate this, when I was in seminary, I worked at Starbucks, and it was a good job for the most part, but one of the most frustrating things is there was sort of a large population of customers that walked around with the assumption that they were God and I was their servant. And that was quite annoying. And one way that came out was they would order their drinks in incredibly confusing ways and not offer you any help when you didn't know what they were saying or what they were talking about. So one day, day, a guy comes in just before last Christmas and comes up to the the computer and I'm making drinks and and he comes up and and he orders a tall cappuccino, pink and blue. And I had no idea what he meant. right, so I asked for a little help. Like, what do you mean? And he just repeated himself, tall cappuccino, pink and blue. So clearly, the guy wasn't going to help me out, and I was going to have to interpret whatever it is he wanted. So I'm looking around, I'm thinking, and, and I look, and our two percent milk had a blue cap, and our non-fat milk had a pink cap. So I thought maybe that's what he wants. He wants a one percent cappuccino, and pink and blue. Maybe that's what he's got. So I I looked at him, and while pointing to the milks, I said, "Tall cappuccino, pink and blue." And for the third time, he just looked at me and said, "Tall cappuccino, pink and blue." So I'm like, fine, pal, that's what you're getting. That's what I'm making for you, all right? So I make it, and I'm just thinking, there's no way this is right. Like, there's no way I'm making the, the drink right. I make it, I hand it off to him, and as I hand it off to him, he looks at me, and he asks, pink and blue? So I just said, pink and blue. And he took it, he, he drank it, and I just, know I'm not, there's no way I made this drink properly. And, and sure enough, a couple minutes later, he comes back and really sarcastically at the end of the bar, and we're really busy, I have a bunch of drinks to, to make, but comes back really sarcastically, puts his drink at the end of the bar and, and says, I have a gift for you. I'm like, all right, maybe you're going to finally tell me what you wanted. You know, this would be great. This would be a nice gift. And, and he holds up a sweet and low, which comes in a pink packet, and an equal, which comes in a blue packet, and he goes, pink and blue. And I'm like, that would have been great five minutes ago when I was making your drink the first time. That would have been really helpful, right? And, and so I finally know what he wants. And, 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 and normally in those situations, I just want to get angry at the guy. But, but I was actually, I don't know if it was just Jesus taking over my body at that moment, but I was just gracious and, and like, oh, you know, I'm really sorry. And in, in the future, you should just let us know what you want is a sweet and low and an equal. That way I can, I can make sure I, I get you the drink the right the first time. And that was a mistake because the guy didn't want to help me. And, and, and you should never offer or never tell people how to order their drink because they just get more mad at you. So after I say this and offer this advice to him, he just said, yeah, tall cappuccino, pink and blue. Fine, pal. Yeah, that, that's just what he wants to order. He's not going to give me any help. And I was just frustrated and angry. And, and really, this guy thinks, right, he's in total power over me. He has total control over me, but he has vastly overestimated his position. Because in reality, I'm making his drink and I'm in power over him because I can give him decaf. Now, at this point, at this point, those of you that have worked in the service industry before, you're thinking, amen, brother, you pre that decaf, right? You give it to him. And those of you that haven't worked in the service industry, you're just thinking to yourself, what kind of human being would give decaffeinated coffee to someone who wants caffeine? Are you even a Christian? (laughs) And you're both right. right? Because the the problem at the center of both of our hearts is that we want the other person to serve us. I don't want to serve a guy like that. I don't want to to play his game. I want him to serve me. I want him to be clear. I I want him just to tell me what he wants. And that in a way, is the problem that we cannot be assimilated that's at the center of all of our cities. That we all walk around and we say, you serve me. Your life to enhance my life. You make me flourish. And God comes to these exiles and he says, no, it's, it's the other way around. If you're my people, you, you walk around with the philosophy, my life to serve you. My life to make your life flourish. I will disadvantage myself that you might your life might be enhanced, because that's what verse seven says, and it's it's a hard word, and, and I like what it says literally. It doesn't just say, you know, seek their flourishing because you'll flourish too, because that's kind of self serving, right? It reminds me of the statement which I do not endorse, but it reminds me of the statement uh, "Happy wife, happy life." Right? I mean, really, that's a self serving statement. Right? I will serve my wife as long as it makes me happy. But once it doesn't make me happy, I won't do it anymore. Right? That's not what God's saying here. He's saying, you seek the flourishing of Babylon because their flourishing is your flourishing. You will not flourish until you are selflessly seeking the flourishing of your enemies. Right? Don't be an adversary. And don't assimilate into the same problem they they, they perpetuate and they live into. No, you are to seek their flourishing because that's the only way you'll flourish is when you're selflessly seeking after their good. So that's what prevents flourishing. But secondly, then what produces flourishing? A first idea kind of there is, is we should seek to bless the city where it's weak. It's interesting where the, the Jews most likely lived in Babylon was in a part of the city that was probably ravaged by war. The Babylon was sort of a violent nation. They invaded lots of people. And so there there was always war going on within uh, the nation or sometimes within the city. So the the Jews probably lived in a place that was very war-torn. And God says, plant uh, plant gardens, build houses there. Make it inhabitable. Make it hospitable. And so we need to seek in our city to find ways to bless where it's weak. Now, I'll be honest, I haven't lived here long enough, so I can't really apply that to Olathe, Johnson County. I don't know the area well enough, but I do think there is a, a, a problem spreading across our cities within our culture that this text I think speaks to in a in a pretty important way. I've heard this pre, this text preached a lot, but one place I've almost never heard or one te, one part of the text I've almost never heard emphasized is that God spends a lot of time saying, "Get married, have kids, and make sure your kids get married and have kids. Do not decrease their increase. Get have big families. Grow." And I think as we reflect on, on our culture today, this is something we should take in. That this is a way for us to bless our city where it's weak. That we, leave, we live in cities, in a culture where fathers are increasingly absent from the home. Either because they're spending more time at work or too much time at work or because they don't live in the home. That we live in cities and cultures, cultures where our marriages are increasingly not stable. Where we no longer think a child needs a father and a mother, but we kind of redefine the family unit however we want to. Before I wade into too much controversy there on my first sermon here at Olathe, (laughs) don't want to go there. um, I, I do think this is an area where we can bless our city. To have a church full of dads who humbly engage and serve their kids. Who seek the flourishing of their wives selflessly before they flourish. That's utterly countercultural. To have children who seek to obey and listen and trust their parents, even when their parents seem to be talking nonsense. that's utterly countercultural. But to have moms who trust in, in, in Christ's acceptance of them, not in how their kids turn out. Right? I mean, to, to have families where just there's a freedom and a grace and a hopefulness. That would be a blessing to a city where the family is becoming increasingly unstable, increasingly not a place of, of hospitality or of, of feeling like it's home, but becoming a place more of exile. To have families that are utterly countercultural here could be a major way we bless the city. So that's one way. We, we should seek to bless the city where it's weak. And secondly, then, as we seek to, to figure out what produces flourishing, we want to bloom where we're planted. I like that phrase. It's a phrase, um, Amy Sherman in her book, Kingdom Calling uh, Coins. And, and basically what it means is you spend most of your life at your job, at your vocation, whatever you do during the week. So, so seek to just bloom and flourish there. That should be your main way of seeking the flourishing of those around you. It should be within your vocation. And, and, and that's important because whether you love your job, you hate your job, whether or not you, you want to do what you do until you die or whether or not you hope to quit next week, God has put you, he has sent you to wherever you are. And then in the verse four, God makes it very clear to these exiles, he has sent them there. They are in Babylon because he wants them in Babylon. And so unless you believe God took a nap or fell asleep and you kind of ended up in the job you ended up in and, and God just sort of let his hands go off the reins for a minute and, and he's trying to get you back where he should be, God has sent you to where you are right now whatever it is you're doing, you're you're sent there. And so bloom where you're planted. And that kind of goes against our culture, right? Because we think that we can only flourish where we want to be. And yet God has sent these people into exile to the last place they want to go. And he's saying, I want you to flourish there. And what's interesting, if we look at verse 11, it's one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It It's kind of one of those verses that when I was a high school student, I got like 30 cards with this verse on it. You know, the, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those are good words, but I'll be honest, if I'd known the context of those words, I probably wouldn't have wanted those cards. Because God is is telling these people, don't worry about your flourishing. I'm going to make sure that you flourish. The God who just sent them out of their homeland, into exile, into the city they don't want to live in. God says, don't worry, I'm going to make sure you flourish. Right? God sends us at times into places we don't want to go, to jobs maybe we don't want to be in. But, but that's besides the point because we are to bloom where we're planted because God has sent us there. And you might find that you can flourish even in a place like Babylon, even in a vocation you don't want to be in. Maybe God's called you there because that's where you will be most fulfilled and you won't know it. Until you give him the chance to seek the flourishing of those around you that you might flourish. So we're bloom, where we're planted. And what that means then is is, is to to, to try and disadvantage ourselves for the sake of of those around us. That's one way to bless the city, to seek its flourishing. If you're a stay-at-home mom, this is what you do. Right? You have to communicate with your kids on a level that they can understand. And it can be really frustrating. You have to engage them and play with them on a level they can comprehend and they can appreciate. And that can be hard. You disadvantage yourself so they can flourish. If you're a manager of a team, you have to do that because you have to sometimes answer the same question over and over and over again. You might have to pick up the work for someone who is, is suffering at home or going through a really hard time. You disadvantage yourself so they can flourish, so they can, can have peace and, and have a good life. And so bloom wherever God has sent you. Seek the flourishing of those around you in your vocation, whatever God has called you to do. But if we're honest, that's not encouraging advice, right? That's really hard. To seek the flourishing of those around us. To seek to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of those around us. Which raises the question, okay, what enables this kind of flourishing? What enables this kind of service? And and so as we go into the, the third point, there's really two things I think we need to remember. The first being... We remember there is a city to come. That if I asked you, is Kansas City, is Olathe, is Johnson County the exact kind of city you want to live in? I'm guessing we would all say no. That as great as it is, there are still parts to our reality, to our lives, we don't want. Whether it's, it's joblessness or whether it's homelessness or poverty, whether it's disease, suffering, death. You and I—I think you and I—all have a sense that we have a hunger for a city better and more flourishing than the city that we're in. One of my favorite singer-songwriters, Josh Ritter, has a song where he talks about a city like that. And here are his lyrics: At night, I make plans for a city laid down, spirals and capitals like the twist of a script. Streets named for heroes that could almost exist. Cedar trees growing in the cool of the squares, young women walking in the portals of prayer. The future glass building in the the past in a dress, the weddings in pollen and the wine bottomless. And all wrongs forgotten and all vengeance made right, the suffering verbs put to sleep in the night. The future descending like a bright chandelier, the world just beginning and guests in good cheer. I long for a city like that, don't you? And don't tell me you think that this world is as good as it can be. That we all long for a world where the suffering verbs are put to sleep in the night. Where vengeance is a distant memory and violence is a distant past. And we long for that city because that, as the Bible said, is what the end of our story all is. And the Bible doesn't end with God coming down really angry at people and burning the world up. It ends with God bringing this sort of city down to us. In Revelation 21, hear these words as God talks about the city to come. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, presented as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Do you long for that city? As I read of that, I may be overwhelmed by all the, the realities we face in our cities, but this makes, this makes me want to work to bring the city that is coming, to work for the king who's bringing that city, a king who brings shalom and flourishing and peace. And we know we can't build the city God's bringing, but we can work to bring about the good that is coming. That yeah, we'll be overwhelmed by the cities in which we live, that they don't function the way they should, that they're frustrating, that they might often be hostile to us. But we also work with a faith and a trust knowing that city is coming. And it frees us up to work for peace, to work for the flourishing of those around us because we know God is guaranteeing that city for us. So we remember the city to come, but I think more importantly, we have to remember what God has done for our flourishing. A few months ago, there was a movie called 42, which came out, and it was the story of, of Jackie Robinson, who was the first African American to ever play baseball in the major leagues. Because up until that point, there was sort of a gentleman's agreement that, that no African Americans could play in the league, that the Major League Baseball was essentially a, a racist and segregationist um, organization. And so there was a guy called Branch Rickey, he was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and he was a Christian. And he felt like God had called him to integrate baseball so that, that whites could play along with, with blacks. So this would lead to a better baseball league, a, a, better, a, a better flourishing. And so he believed that baseball should be integrated, that he should bring his faith into his work. But he also knew that whoever was the first African American to play baseball would face incredible hostility, incredible racism, incredible threats. It's that those who played on his team with him and those who played against him would hate him and hurl terrible things at him. And so whoever the first African American baseball player would be had to be a guy who was strong enough to seek the flourishing of those around him. To not care if 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 people hurled insults or hurled threats at him, to have the strength enough not to fight back. And so Ricky found Jackie Robinson, a man who by this time was a man of faith, a man who had great resources to, to take on this suffering, a man who could, could turn the other cheek. And that's the story, right? He comes into the league, he faces incredible hostility, incredible, uh, just incredible hatred of him, and yet he doesn't fight back. And as he seeks the good of those around him, even though they're hostile to him, even though they hate him, he opens up all kinds of flourishing. Not just for African American players to come after him and play baseball, but he was another reminder to us as a country that our segregation policies were ridiculous, that racism is, is a joke. And he saw the flourishing of those around him. And even though it meant he suffered, he opened up all kinds of flourishing for Major League Baseball, for other professional sports, for the city of Brooklyn, for all kinds of flourishing. And as I, I tell that story even, I think that's not really encouraging for us, right? I mean, how do you get the strength to do that? And that's because Jackie Robinson knew the same God that we know or that we should know. That our God is a God who selflessly seeks the flourishing of others. That our God is a God who selflessly sent his son that we might not be caught in death but flourish into new life. That Jesus is a God who goes to his cross to die for those who hate him, for his enemies. That we might not be caught in sin, caught in death, caught in hopelessness but be, have the freedom to flourish into new life. That the Holy Spirit indwells and serves and teaches us That we may not be caught in the sins of our past, but look into the flourishing of new life and new vision into the future. That's the God we encounter every time we worship him, every time we take communion, every time we open that word, we read the story of a God who has sought our flourishing, that we can go and seek the flourishing of others. As you and I will never have the strength to love other people selflessly. We just won't. We're pink and blue guy. Right? We're that guy walking around saying, You serve me, your life to enhance mine. And and when God comes to these exiles and says, You seek their welfare, you seek their flourishing, because their flourishing is your flourishing, even though that overwhelms us, we know that's what God is like. And as we trust him, as we worship him, as we come to him in faith, he can make us into people like himself, who seek the good of others, who seek the flourishing of others, even if they're our adversaries, even if they're hostile to us, even if They don't appreciate us or don't want us. Because that is what God has done for me and for you. When he went to his cross, suffering so that we might flourish,